So starting in, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, uh, Paul's been contending with the false apostles, right, that have come into the church at Corinth, that have been looking to really slander Paul and his reputation. They're trying to make him appear unfit to be an apostle because they're saying he's a guy we can't really trust. He's, he's untrustworthy. Paul's a guy that never liked to, you know, prop himself up trying to defend himself or his character. He didn't like to talk himself up. But in this letter, it's the most kind of heartfelt, most personal letter that Paul writes. And he's having to really kind of talk a little bit about himself in defense of what has been coming against him, the opposition that he's been receiving. He doesn't like to do that, but we see this kind of heart from Paul a little bit more, not necessarily to pump himself up, but to declare what Jesus, you know, has done in his life and how the Lord has called him. And so he's needing to do this because of the opposition coming against him. People saying, you know, he told us he's going to come and visit us. He hasn't shown up in the way that he's, he said he would. So these false apostles are saying, you can't trust him. He's not a guy of integrity. And that's important for the Christian, isn't it? I think that's why Paul's kind of really defending himself because integrity is, is important because the world is watching. The world's watching to see how we live. Are we living in a manner that's lining up with what we're saying, with what we're declaring as Christians? Does our life line up with our actions? Integrity is very important. I, I remember uh, when I was younger, you know, my mom would give me a, a couple of dollars to go to the store and with a couple of dollars I could pick up, you know, a gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, a loaf of bread, maybe a box of cereal. Y you can't do that anymore, right? On account of all the security cameras and things like that. So you just can't get away with those things. And so we recognize, you know, the world is watching and we need to be integral in our actions that it is lining up with the word of God and who we say we are in Christ. And so Paul has been revealing here, listen guys, as much as what you're trying to say to malign me, I'm not being flaky, I'm not being dishonest, He's a guy that's being directed by the Lord and, and in God's will, and he's a man that's maintained his integrity. Look at what he says in verse 23. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So again, Paul's Coming back to all the complaints and the criticisms that he's had, you know, uh, thrown against him. And Paul says that I didn't come to you in the way that I, I thought I was going to come to you simply because the Lord redirected me. And ultimately, notice what Paul says there. It was to spare you in verse 23. And he says, I call God as my witness. God, God's the one that's ultimately directing my path, leading me. And so this was not me being flaky or me just going, I had something better that came up. I call God as my witness. It was actually out of my heart for you that I didn't come to you. I wanted to spare you. And that's why I came no more to Corinth. That's what Paul is, is saying here. He didn't want to have another heavy and, and sorrowful uh, meeting with them. That's what happened last time. We see that Paul had made another visit. He's going to uh, uh, allude to here in a moment, but he came to them before and it was a very heavy one. Paul had to, 
how to help them get things straightened out a little bit in their own, you know, faith. And, and he had to kind of speak some difficult things in their life, ultimately to help them and, and encourage them. It's not that he's saying, it's not that I had any kind of dominion over your faith. I wasn't coming heavy handed because I feel like I'm the big boss guy and I have the authority now to just come down on you whenever you're not really in line. And certainly doesn't have any dominion over their faith in the sense that, you know, he's this guy that's carrying authority and they just have to do whatever he says. No, he's trying to seek to see them just line up with the word of God. He doesn't have dominion over, over them. God does. And all he's trying to do is be that messenger to line them up with the word of the Lord. But he says, I'm not coming heavy on you. I'm not trying to be a big boss man. He says, ultimately, verse 24, I'm your fellow worker. I'm just one of you. I'm just, I'm just here serving the Lord as we're all seeking to serve the Lord and to do so for your joy. Notice that here. His desire is ultimately their joy. Now, there are some leaders that have no problem coming down on you. It allows them to kind of flex their muscles of authority over you. They feel that fear will be the best motivator to do a good job. I, I hope you never see that here in this church. I have no muscles to flex at all anyway, so hopefully that's not gonna happen. But, but that certainly wasn't Paul's heart. He didn't carry any kind of dominion or, or authority over them. He was called as an apostle and he had the authority to deliver the word of God and to preach that truth to them. But he was doing so ultimately for their joy. He didn't want to force them into anything. See, authoritarian domination is often the manner of false apostles and the kingdom they serve, right? But it's not the way of Christ. You see that kind of thing oftentimes with, with cults? Because again, they're not lining up with the truth. They're not seeking to be a fellow servant. They want to uphold this kind of dominion over people. But that was never the way of Christ, nor should it ever be the way of the servants of Christ. In fact, Jesus laid it out very well for us in Luke 22, verse 25 to 27, where Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you, on the contrary... He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and notice this, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Well, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus modeled that life of servanthood and ultimately servant leadership. Oh, he was a great leader, but he's not an authoritarian dictator. He was a servant leadership. And he modeled that greatness of servanthood when he took the place of a lowest servant in John 13 when he washed his disciples' feet. That was the role of the lowest servant of the house to do that. And Jesus took that upon himself. He's not sitting back looking to be pampered by his disciples saying, you guys, you know, give me a little bit of a spa day today. I've been tired, you know, been, been going through a lot of difficulty. He's not looking for that for himself. He's taking that role of serving others. That's what's truly going to make one great. That's the model that Jesus carried out, and Peter got this quite well. And he writes in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, verse 2 to 3, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you 
but being examples to the flock. So for some, the Lord has entrusted people in their care, but we need to model how Jesus served. And as he shepherded and cared for the flock, that's why Peter says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Not, don't be lords over them, but be examples to them of what it means to serve. And that's truly how every Christian leader should function, isn't it? We're, we're fellow workers. And the desire of a leader should not be force and fear of the flock, but joy from their flock. Coming alongside to bless them and his fellow workers, when others are experiencing joy, guess what? We're gonna experience joy. The whole flock benefits from that. So let us be those ourselves walking in joy and being joy givers in how we minister to one another and serve one another. And we can do so, we can be those that are, are, are passing on that joy when we just simply reflect on all that we've received from the Lord that we've seen just in this first chapter, second Corinthians alone, to where we see the great comfort of God by which he comforts us in all our, our tribulations. We see that he strengthens us in our moments of weakness. We see that his promises are true and dependable. That's all laid out for us in the first 22 verses of chapter one. So already we see, oh, we got more than enough reason to be conducting ourselves in joy and, and passing that joy on to others. So notice what Paul says in, in chapter two, verse one. And, and remember in the original manuscripts, there's no chapter breaks right? There's no verses indicated. These all came afterwards. So this is really flowing together with what we've seen at the end of chapter one and moving right in the same thought now in chapter two, where Paul says here in chapter two, verse one, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me. Now, remember here, Paul's had several different correspondence with this church and, and this kind of ongoing correspondence with the church. This letter, though it's named 2 Corinthians, it's actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church. There were two letters that were lost. And that's not a big deal. It's not like we're saying, oh, we've lost part of the Bible. Those were never meant actually to be a part of uh, the canon of scripture. They weren't necessary. But they were, there were two other letters that Paul wrote to the church there. So, and, and here now, he alludes, like I, I said earlier, to a previous um, visit that he had made with them, that I determined, this is myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Now, some have thought, maybe he's talking about his very first trip to Corinth when he planted the church. But that was not a sorrowful visit, that was a joyous occasion as people were getting saved and the church is planted. It was a wonderful occasion there in the first visit, Acts 18 records that. So it's most likely not that first trip he's talking about, it seems that Paul made a secondary trip to the city of Corinth that was a, a hard one, a painful visit as he had to come with that rebuke and correction for some of the error, some of the things that were going on in the church and it brought much sorrow. So we see Paul's had already a difficult confrontation with them and he doesn't want a, another painful visit. His reason is that it would just not be helpful He's gonna become sorrowful 
and his go-to, you know, pick me up for encouragement, which was the fellow believers in Corinth. Well, they're all going to be down. They're all going to be like, Paul, man, you just laid into us. Oh, man. And they're all going to be just sulking, you know, in their rooms. They're just like, oh, woe is me. We're such losers. And they're all going to be down. And Paul's going to be like, man, this really stinks for me. Because I want, I want to experience joy myself. And my joy is going to come out of seeing you walking in the joy of Jesus as well. They were a source of joy for him. So now he's thinking, I didn't want to come again to you and, and see that kind of play out. Paul had a real heart for the people. And Paul's desire was to see people walking in, in joy. But that joy came out of walking in obedience to the Lord. That's an important lesson for us here. That obedience is not meant to drag us down or be a burden to us. God calls us to to live a certain way and to follow him for our blessing and our joy. It's not meant to be a test until we're finally with him one day. It says, this is the way that you're gonna walk in the fullness and abundance of life today is when you walk in obedience to what I've called you to. That's gonna ensure your peace and joy. And so it's not that Paul wanted to withhold these things from him, but he wanted to deliver this in a way where they could kind of process that and not show up and really kind of be a downer to them. That's why he didn't come. That's what he's stating here. I didn't come because I was wishy-washy. I didn't come because I was not a person of my word. I didn't come because I wanted to spare you. And so I wrote to you, look at what he says in verse three. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So, like I said, instead of making a, a sorrowful, painful visit, he decided to write a tough letter instead, to put it down on you know pen and paper, and let them have time to process it, to read it. Yes, there was correction and rebuke, but he wrote it so that they could read this, process it, and allow the Holy Spirit just to kind of work in their lives and bring them in line to those things. He sought for the repentance, but ultimately so that they could be restored with the Lord once again. Then when Paul did come to them, well, they'd have reason to rejoice. They've gotten themselves back in line with the truth and with the things of God. So when Paul does show up again, which he desired to do, then they could all rejoice rather than having this history of a painful confrontation. And it certainly seemed to have that intended effect because Paul would later say in, in his letter here in verse seven, or sorry, chapter seven, verse eight, he says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So here what Paul is saying, he says, listen, when I wrote that letter to you, I didn't come to you because I didn't want to have that confrontation and, and see you just kind of really, you know, dip into that pit of despair. I wrote a letter and it was kind of, I don't re regret writing it, though at the time I was regretting, I was going, he's thinking, Lord, help them receive this. This is going to be hard, this is going to be tough, but I got to speak what's right and true and needed he was kind of regretting it, though he didn't regret sending it. And he says, you saw it, you received it, and you were sorrowful, but only for a little while. So it seems that they, it, it took, and they responded. 
and they began to get themselves back on track. And he says in verse three, my, my joy is the joy of you all. You know, notice something here. Paul didn't like to be harsh, right? It wasn't his heart at all. That's again, the trouble with writing. You never really know the real heart behind it. You can read an email and be like, man, this person's really angry. And say, like, no, no, I just had, you know, caps lock on there by accident. I didn't mean to <laughs> yell at you, but you just don't get oftentimes the tone of that. Paul loved these people deeply. And if they were sad, he didn't just say, you know, oh, deal with it. Don't be such a crybaby. He was genuinely concerned for them and cared for them. If they were sad, then he was sad. If they were joyful, well, then he too could be joyful. And isn't that the way the body should be operating together? Where we come alongside one another with, with empathy. When somebody's sad or hurting, we're hurting. But, but we also want to come alongside in encouragement so that they can be glad, so that we too can rejoice together. We should be grieved when people are being affected by sin, so much so that we're willing to speak into their lives and seek to lead them and have them walk in obedience to God's word. It's very easy to just kind of ignore things and not want to be confrontational, but ultimately, love needs to win out on these things. And our love for people should motivate us to be those that speak into people's lives, no matter how hard that might be. Paul had many tears over what he had to say to them in this letter. I, I can't recall Paul really crying over some of the experiences he had, even though he's been through beatings and heartache and, and tribulation after tribulation. He's not cried over the discomforts he's faced, but it was having to write with correction that kind of broke him. That was, that was a, con, a, a conflict to him and, and having to write with many tears here. And that word affliction that he uses in verse four, for out of much affliction, and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. That word affliction is that word we saw in the first chapter for tribulations, which is philipsis. Again, meaning what? Pressing. Paul was pressing his heart at the idea of, man, I gotta come alongside these two with a difficult word, truthful as it might be, but it was an anguish to him. It was an affliction, it was a pressing. Paul's not writing you know, loosely or half-heartedly. He wasn't callous, he loved these people. That's the heart of a shepherd. He was so concerned for them that it brought him to tears. And because of his love though, he needed to speak the hard things, the truthful things. That's what we're called to do. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, may we, or may grow up in all things in him who is the head Christ. You see, we've forsaken much truth today and overcompensated with just simply thinking we need to speak in love. The church as a whole, generally speaking, has kind of gone on this path of, we just wanna be loving. We don't wanna be confrontational. We don't wanna say the hard things. We want people just to feel loved. But the word of God has always balanced these two things. We need to speak the truth in love. It always needs to go together. So that why? So that people can mature and grow up into all things who is the head Christ. Without speaking truth in love, then we're going to have Christians that are not really growing and moving past some of the things that maybe they need to move past and surrender to the Lord. See, speaking truth without love 
can be very harsh. But speaking love without truth can be hypocritical. We're leaving out what's needed. We're not being honest. Speaking love without truth can be hypocritical, but speaking truth without love can be very harsh. For example, I've used this example before. It's probably not a good example, but you could have, let's say we got people after church are praying for people. We got our prayer teams. I'm thankful for them. And maybe somebody's up here with very bad breath. And people are like coming for prayer and they're like getting slain. And you're thinking, man, the spirit is really at work. No, no, they're just getting knocked out by somebody's bad breath here. And somebody might, they might come and go, is the problem with me? Am I, is my breath really bad? And out of love, you might be going, oh no, I don't want to tell them. And you're like, no, no, your, your breath is really quite all right. And your eyes are watering. You're just trying to hold it back, you know. And, and you don't want to speak the truth because you want to be loving. Well, that's hypocritical. You're not revealing what's really at stake here. But then you could also go the other side and speak the truth without love and be to say, dude, do you know what you're doing here? What's your problem? Do you not own a toothbrush? Have you been eating garbage? Because it sure seems like it. What is going on with you? Get your act together. That's maybe truthful, but it is absent of love. It's not helpful. And the Bible only speaks with this balance that we need to have both sides. That's not, by the way, all prayer team members right now are going, oh my God, is he speaking about me? This is not, <laughs> this is all fictional. Not addressing any need here today. But we do have mints available up here if people need it. <laughs> but we need to love people enough to say what's needed, but to say it in a way where it'll help and not hurt. And we need to be willing to receive those same words that might have to come to us. Maybe I'm the guy that needs a mint and I need to be ready. But on a, on a spiritual level, when we need to come along and, and address things that are, are gonna help them grow in the Lord, we need to be ready to receive those if it's for us. McDonald said in his commentary, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We should not resent it if we are counseled or warned in a godly manner. Rather, we should realize that any person who would do this really has an interest in us. Righteous rebuke should be taking us from the Lord and we should be grateful for it. So verse five goes on to say, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was in, inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So Paul now begins to deal with a very specific issue that was taking place in the church. It's dealing with a, a brother that needs to have this love reaffirmed to him. We're not sure what exactly Paul is addressing. Many Bible teachers and scholars believe that he's dealing with the brother that he had to bring up in chapter five of 1 Corinthians. You remember, hopefully, the story. Remember 1 Corinthians 5? There was sin going on in the church where it was to the degree that a brother had his father's wife. Most likely, it was this guy's stepmom, whether his dad was in the picture or not. He's been in a, in a relationship with his stepmom. And instead of the church coming against him going, dude, what are you doing? 
this is not good, this is not healthy, this is not right. You need to, to repent to that. They came along and said, we're a church of grace. We're a church of love. Everybody's welcomed here. Everybody can come just as they are. And we're not gonna condemn you. We're not gonna judge you. In fact, we're gonna celebrate the freedom and the liberty that we have now in Christ. And you can just be who you are. And that's exactly what this church in Corinth did. They didn't address the sin. And the sin was becoming like leaven in the lump that was, that was just putrefying everything. And so Paul says, you've got to deal with this. And it seems like they did exactly that. Paul's counsel was, this man needs to be handed over to Satan. He needs to be put out of the church and given over to Satan. Now you might listen to that and go, oh man, that sounds harsh. Like, isn't there some steps in between? That seems like you're just going right to the deep end right now. But Paul's heart is not separation completely, but rather restoration. And so Paul says, let them be cast out of the church, excommunicated, and handed over to Satan so that they will come to know that what they had in the church, and more so with the Lord, was ultimately the best and, and for their good. Now that they are outside the church, now they're beginning to see the lack of protection they have and the work that the enemy wants to do. And Paul's desires, hopefully, they come to a point where they recognize, oh, this is a path that's gonna lead me right to death and to hell. This is not where I wanna be. I wanna be back in the graces of, of God and walking in the truth. So Paul's ideal is not to just cast them away and forget about them, but ultimately bring about reconciliation, restoration, not just with the church, but with that brother and with God. So it seems that the church followed in that council. They went and did that, but then it seems that the church went a little bit overboard. Because notice what Paul is saying. Hey, hold, guys, step back a bit here. You need to reaffirm your love for him now. You see, the church had acted in the, in the way that Paul called them to do, but they've gone too far. They've left him out when he's repented and desired to come back into the fold. They showed him the door, but that door remained closed for him to come back in. And it wasn't just a personal thing for Paul, as though he's the only one affected or hurt by this. He says, all of you to some extent. This is gonna grieve all of you to some extent. It's, it's affecting the church as a whole. You see, church discipline should always be for the purpose of repentance and reconciliation. Anything that leaves us out is not truly Christian. That's always the heart of church discipline. Not to crack a whip and be harsh and, and, and just cast them out and, and move on. Church discipline is always meant to bring them back into the fold where they can walk in that truth and obedience to the Lord. And Paul says some very important words for us in Galatians 6, verse 1, that we need to take to heart in these matters where he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Paul says, you need to come alongside those that have been overtaken in, in some kind of a sin, and you need to restore them and do so with a spirit of gentleness and recognize that you are every bit prone to do and make those same mistakes and to be overtaken in a sin. You're every bit as prone to do that. And you're gonna want 
a spirit of gentleness coming alongside you in your time of need to bring correction, but to bring restoration. And so that's how we need to respond to others too, Paul says. Paul's revealing that, that this man, he suffered enough. He's seen his error, and now it's time to respond in love and to reaffirm your love to him. Notice it's not affirm his sin, it's affirm your love for him because he's a repentant man, so it's time to forgive, comfort, and restore. Now, for motivation in these things, we only need to look at what God has done for us personally, right? Because we ourselves have all deserved to be cast aside, thrown out, guilty before God, unworthy to come before him. We've all been in that state where we deserve that. We didn't deserve reconciliation with our heavenly father, yet out of his great love, he has forgiven those who turned to him with a repentant heart and he's graciously restored our relationship to him. So we have to recognize I had every reason to be that person cast out but God has forgiven me and so Paul would say in Ephesians 4 32 be kind to one another tenderhearted forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you let us keep that in mind that we've been forgiven much and we now need to walk in that forgiveness to others Paul says here in verse nine, we'll, we'll close with these last few verses. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. So this church that obediently followed Paul's counsel and instructions when this man was sinning, 1 Corinthians 5, they followed in that, but now they're put to the test again to say, to see, are they gonna follow Paul's instructions to bring about forgiveness and let this man back in now? To open that door back up for him to come in. See, we can find it easier to dismiss people and show them the door, but are we equally ready to welcome them back in when they're humbled and broken? No matter what they've done, maybe even to hurt you. Are you ready to receive people with that attitude of forgiveness and tenderheartedness and love? You know, it's been said that Christians are the only army in the world that shoot their own wounded. It's a sad reality, it's what often happens. Is that we attack and we devour one another. We judge and we condemn rather than walking in grace and forgiveness. Paul lets them know that when they forgive such a person who's broken and repentant, well, he's forgiven them too. And this particular brother is certainly forgiven by Paul. And Paul says, and I, I forgive him in the presence of Christ at the end of verse 10. I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, meaning that this is the Father's heart as well. This is, this is the Lord's heart. He's brought forgiveness, not just out of something he feels need to be done, but it's in line with God and his heart for forgiveness. See, Paul says, lest Satan, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. Paul knows that Satan is ready 
to pounce on situations like this and bring about discord in the church. Satan's schemes are always to divide and conquer and to, to separate, to tear people down and to turn people against one another. So Paul says, you need to be aware of the devil's devices. You need to be aware how he is on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. He comes only to seek or to, to kill and destroy. That's Satan's schemes, that's his devices. And he will do that, he accomplishes his purposes by turning the church against one another, causing us to attack each other and divide. Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says, do you recognize what you're wrestling with? It's not flesh and blood. It's not between you and another person. As much as somebody might have hurt you or offended you, as much as you might engage in a conflict with somebody or an argument with somebody, that's not where the real battle is happening. No, Satan is using all that. And he's stirring up the pot to cause you to go against one another. Your issue is not with that person. It's a spiritual issue. Oftentimes it's just learning how we need to die to self. That person might be provoking or pushing buttons, but it's only revealing the sin that's at work in our life. And how we need to die to self on a spiritual level. We can't always be blaming one another. We need to recognize what Satan does and his devices that are at work to bring us against one another and to cause the church to be divided. What a sad history we've seen in the church where there's been division after division. You know, in some towns you got, you know, first Baptist church of, second Baptist church, third Baptist church of, you know, it's like, not, I'm not trying to pick on Baptists, it's just what flows out, okay? But, um, <laughs> You got one town, you got all these churches, it's like, what's going on? And the division is not always just about, well, we feel our theology is correct over their theology or, or our traditions are better than their traditions. It's that we've allowed Satan to come in and rob us of God's best and bring division. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. Satan is lurking, looking to stir up the pot. And, and he'll do this. According to our context here, and what we're looking at in 2 Corinthians, according to our context, here's a couple ways that Satan loves to stir up the pot. Is he'll come in and make you think that sin is tolerable, that it's really no big deal. Was well, it really something that you need to deal with? Is it really that? And what did Satan do in the garden? Did God really say? Oh, you won't. You won't surely die if you eat of this. No, come on. Right from the very beginning, Satan's schemes have been causing you to question God's word and to make you think, this is really no big deal. No, no, you'll be fine if you do this. He makes people think sin is tolerable, that it's okay, it's no big deal. We can be accepting of sin. And in fact, if you're not accepting of sin, then you're not really being a very loving, are you? On the other side, if we're not gonna be accepting a sin, then he'll make us think that we need to be overly judgmental or condemning a sin. We need to come against people and, and maybe be unforgiving of others when they've walked into sin where we go, oh, how wicked, how, you don't deserve 
our fellowship. And we can overcompensate that way. None of these are characteristics of Christ, are they? Listen, church, we need to confront sin. And this is becoming more and more of an unfavorable thing to do today among the, the church generally. My goodness, I, I can't believe this path that we're on with some of the things that are being accepted now in the name of Jesus. It's downright sin. And nobody wants to call it out. We want to be accepted. We want to be a, a, a church where everybody just feels welcome. Listen, sin needs to be confronted. We think we don't want people to feel judged. So we'll walk alongside them in love and, and trust that love will lead them to the truth. Listen, love will lead them to feeling loved, but truth is needed to lead them to truth. We don't have one without the other. They go hand in hand. That's why we speak the truth in love. But on the other side of the coin, we can be too judgmental and harsh, and we think we need to make a person suffer for all their sin and wrongdoing. That's not our role either. We confront, we correct, but we do so in love and grace, and we be ready to forgive and restore so the body of Christ can be united with one another and united and at peace with God. That's our heart and our desire. Walk in truth and love. Confront, correct, but do so in a gracious, loving manner. Don't give the devil any room in these areas. We're not ignorant of his devices. We know he is crafty, we know he's sly. And he's at work in ways that we don't even realize, where we just think, that person's the problem. He's the guilty party. No, no, you're giving room for the enemy. Walk in grace, walk in love. Understand the way that we have been so graciously forgiven by our Savior. And encourage people to walk in line with him, confronting sin, but being quick to receive and forgive and walk in grace with one another. Worship team, would you come? We're gonna close with a song and let's take some time to bring these things to the Lord and to reveal things in our own hearts that maybe he needs to address today. So Lord, we come before you. And Lord, your, your word is, is good and sometimes it's, it's hard to receive and I pray that today from this word Lord you would begin to reveal in our own hearts individually and specifically things that maybe we need to bring more in line with you Lord we want to follow your ways and we want to walk in grace but we want to be a church and we want to be a people that walk in, in your truth unwavering in those things unapologetically walking in the truth, but we want to handle ourselves in a, still in a loving, gracious way. So may we not look down on others or look to lift ourselves up above others. And we have a heart for people to see them come in line with you and your word, to walk in the, the truth and to, to experience the salvation that you have for them. Lord, use us in these things. Keep this church, Lord. Keep this church strong and standing 
in the faith that we will not allow room for the enemy to come in. Let us not be ignorant of his schemes and devices. Let us be aware that the battle is not with one another. <laughs> it's fought in that spiritual realm against the enemy. So Lord, just protect us, keep us safe, Lord. Keep us loving and strong and united together around you and your word. We ask this in your name, amen.